Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Hope you're having a happy Tuesday. If you're listening to it on Tuesday, I don't know. It could be any day, really, that you're listening to it. listening to it on Friday, like we're recording on Friday, TGIF. I mean, yeah, if you haven't picked up, we record on Fridays. <laughs> anyway, we're going to get right into it. We have a very special guest from across the pond, Andrew Edwards. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. He's a three-time published author, and which includes the uh, memoir, I've got a stat for you, my life with autism. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you very much. So what time is it right now for you? Ten past six in the evening. Ten past six in the evening. And it's gone dark, but then again, it's February. So if it's June, if it was this time in June, it'd be going dark past 10 o'clock at night. Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. 10 o'clock at night in June. And in December, it goes dark half past three. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Half past three in December and 10 o'clock in June in the evening. But it could be like Iceland, where Iceland have about 21 hours of sunlight in the summer. Yeah. And they have about four hours of sunlight in in the winter. So five hours of sunlight in the winter. Yeah, I know. I've seen that they have those, like the blackout completely curtains and just to try to get a sense of day and night. (laughs) Well, Britain, obviously... As far as the world is concerned, isn't too far far from Scandinavia. But the thing yeah. is, certainly Northern Scotland's not. But uh, yeah, yeah, we t- in Europe generally we tend to have outside of the winter we tend to have more hours of sunlight in our summer. So, and I always I quite around for the extra heat. So exactly. Nice. So Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come about to write a book? Well, like, as you said, Vicky, I've written three. I worked at Manchester United Television for 11 and a half years as a broadcast statistician from the of September 2002 to 21st of April 2014. I was only supposed to be there for one day on work placement. Oh, wow. Uh, my late beloved mother, who passed away the week before Christmas, very suddenly, quite suddenly, she phoned them up, got me one day work placement, and I ended up working for 11 and a half years on my boyhood football club. And then after that, I was made redundant. Last three years at MUTV weren't the happiest, but the first eight were terrific. So after that, all the support was cut by the services because I had a support worker when I was at MUTV. Interesting. Who was my brother-in-law. And then after that, he had to get another job because he had no job. And my sister became a carer the day. My sister, brother-in-law, niece lived next door. Mm-hmm. And we don't have to go through to each other's house, but an archway. They lived next door 22 and a half years. Then my sister became a carer and she said, I'm not that I wasn't going to rot. So I ended up writing my memoirs. Wow. And exactly a year to the day, I taught to the minute near enough that I was made redundant from my United Television. A publisher signed me up based in Staffordshire in in the middle of England. And yeah, it sold what, about eleven hundred and thirty copies. What did that feel like when they approached you and said yeah, we'd like to publish it. Were you just so surprised, or what? What was the feeling? Not, not, I thought it was a it was a wonderful feeling, but no, it it was something that I was certainly coveting because I'd written my version of it. 
which had taken about nine months, break, break for Christmas 2014, some time ago now. And then I wrote away to a few publishers and I got onto something called the BBC Radio 4 Today programme without actually a physical product. It's one of the most, it's the second most, it's the most, second most listened to radio show in the morning in the whole of the IT Kingdom. Oh, wow. And has more listeners in the morning than any television show does in the morning. And it's been long run, it's been going about 80 years, if not longer than that. And went from there, the publisher was listening from that interview and signed me up, which the interview is still available online. If you Google Andrew Edwards Autism, you can see it, it comes up. Ironically mm-hmm. enough, when the interview was played out, I actually went for a run. <laughs> you had quite a career working for uh, the television channel, the broadcast. How did you get into working? I think it said you worked 11 and a half years for MUTV. How did you get into working there? Was it an interest of yours for a long time? Yes, it was very much. It was basically my obsession when I was growing up was Manchester United. How I got into that, Amanda, was that my mother phoned them up. Just wow. phoned them up and, I, and my, my late beloved mother phoned them up. I used to phone in talk shows on the station. Sir Alex Ferguson had visited my school to the legendary manager, who was their manager from 1986 to 2013, and opened the news premises of my school in Exxon on the 6th of April 2001. Then I was invited to the club's training grounds to have my GCSE history certificate presented to me, which I did in six months, rather wow. than the traditional two, rather than the routine two years. And then they just thought away from that and heard of me. And then we, my, my mum phoned them up. And the school had been turned down for workplace because they usually took, they usually only accepted uh, university university students. Right. So I was in school at the time, in a special school, in a classroom on my own in Wrexham. And due to my mother being very, very persuasive, <laughs> And uh, they got she got me in. So anyway, the, as this is the inclusive education podcast mm-hmm. project podcast, I've got a great story about my ma Hazel Davis. When I was looking for a school, yeah, after I'd been without a school for fifteen months, mm-hmm. I didn't go to a stay school in nineteen ninety seven because I I'd been allegedly beaten up by a member of staff at one school. Oh, no. Another school when I was four. Mm-hmm. I'd been allegedly tied up by a member of staff by, but because I was the only people in the class who could talk. Yeah. So when it came to looking for a school, I'd been out of school 15 months. They weren't going to release the requisite funds for me to start at that school, St. Christopher's School, which has turned out to be a great school for me. So Matt Ma was went to the head of education's office in Wrexham County. He told the director of education wasn't there. Rang my sister to say, you know what, get the papers here, bring me lunch, Melanie. But after that, she noticed one of the members of staff was accepted in. Oh, it's the director of education. Yeah, yeah, he's in. <laughs> so she looked at the keypad they were pitching in, yeah. memorised it, got through, went to the director of education, <laughs> basically, in no uncertain terms, gave my son an education. Wow. It worked as well. I mean, the power of persuasion from a determined mom. (laughs) We have a lot of clients that tend to think outside of the box. And, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease is the same here. I've heard that expression on The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That it once on The Simpsons. (laughs) When I was, like, on the beginning to that, when I was growing up in my teenage years, but before that, and but after that, I couldn't go out of the house when The Simpsons was on television, even if I'd seen it hundreds of times. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I'll tell you one bit now, you might be of interest. Yeah. 
Because when I was diagnosed autistic at the age of four in April 1989, a specialist told my mother to go home and watch Rain Man. It is likely your son will be institutionalised. Wow. So I think now when, when she's resting, probably in her bedroom, well, that's where her ashes are. She'll, uh, she, she proved, we both proved that gentleman wrong. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the things that we often have to do is convince, you know, teachers or administrators that the potential of the child is there and they're just not accessing it. I imagine, you know, just like that gentleman had told your mom to go and watch Rayman because that's likely what your son is going to, you know, turn into. Well, not just that, Gummy work, well, Gummy institutionalized that Raymond, the character Raymond Babbitt was for most of the show. I'm probably even worse institutionalized because at that time I couldn't talk. Oh, okay. But the, however, my first word, and this is quite amusing if not slightly eccentric my first word was aubergine oh really <laughs> yes. there is a story behind that you probably haven't heard of a british soap opera of the 80s 90s and very early noughties that was called brookside okay it was set in the city of liverpool i came up with the word aubergine in my autistic mind because the end credits of the show brookside reminded me of aubergine for some unknown reason that's... which that's it hmm. That's Which I very still can't probably, I can't even explain the reasoning behind that to this day, but there you go. But you're able to articulate it, and, I, and your memory is so vivid and very specific. You've already given us so many different stories that you can remember like very small details, which I find fascinating because I know so many different people's brains work differently, but I think that is very important because it provides a different insight. And I don't think that people look to what a child can do. And that's something that Amanda and I try to advocate for, right? Is the strengths of a child. And I mean, had you even ever thought about writing a book? I mean, obviously you have now three and I want to get into your latest book but was it something that came natural to you or it was just something that you wanted to try to see if you could do well i'd always wanted ostensibly to write a book i think i learned to gain the articulation over time especially from my godmother my auntie shireen who taught me english gcse and like i don't know about you hear about other people that probably got better grades than me mm. at english gcse whether they might got a b or something i got a c but the, the the point is, I retained all the all the information that I needed to know, and then I added to that my vernacular, my lexicon. If I was unsure of what a word meant, mm -hmm. I'd look it up on Google. Yeah. And then I would look for alternative meanings for the same alternative words with the same meaning. So yes, certainly it was always something I had in the back of my mind because. It's not been a routine life, but what is a routine life? And more about what you said, Vicky, about people focus on what people can't, on what a person can't do rather than what they can do. That is a bugbear of mine because it's like with a whether with an athlete or or with a person on the person generally in society, or we focus on what that person can't do. Well, why don't you focus on that person's skills, that person's right. abilities? rather than focusing on one little aspect that person can't achieve, because if we focused on what people can achieve, it would certainly be a happier world. A happier world because at the end of the day, it's too much negativity. We focus too much on what a person can't do, rather than what they can do, and there's plenty a person can do. 
but sometimes unlocking that potential is is cloud is clouded by pessimism where a negativity if we focus on the positive side yes can't do this and this right yeah you say what i can't do but what can i do because that's what i want to know it's like oh you've given me the problem right you're not giving me any solutions to the problem how i can manage that issue like i don't know if you've about art how much you know about autism but with autism you get such traits as eating disorders right where i didn't really know i had eating disorder i knew i didn't I overate or I underate sometimes right. or right. or I ate the same foods repeatedly. But society painted the picture and eating disorder was either bulimia right. or anorexia mm-hmm. where people I volunteered autistic youngsters and I realised youngsters thought, Oh my goodness, they're just like me. They've clearly got eating disorders right. some of these. Mm-hmm. Doing exactly what I was doing at the equivalent age. And also my niece, Chloe, she has dyspraxia. And okay. with dyspraxia, she has an eating disorder as well. Yeah. Which I think if we looked, not particularly deeply, I think the majority of us would have some semblance of an eating disorder. But like I say, I think we focus more too much on what people can't do rather than what they can do. Absolutely. And I wanted to kind of go back to something that you had mentioned is your volunteering. And, yeah. you know, I think it's so important for a child to see themselves in their role models. So of course, here in America, last summer, you know, the real catalyst for a lot of different racial justice with the Black Lives Matter movement, which I know is global. But just the aspect of even seeing our first vice president being female and then being of different racial backgrounds is something that just it means everything to a little kid like, oh, that person looks like me. Is that what you found when you were mentoring or you are continuing to mentor these children is that they need that role model? Well, I certainly don't that I don't I'm not currently in that role. Oh, okay, okay. So it sort of came to. Not a natural conclusion, but I sort of realised my potential with that. Mm. So, but, well, my potential, but I realised to achieve what I wanted to achieve, even raising money for charity, but still a support yeah. of the charity. Yeah. Having a commemorative event for my mother when the vaccines have turned their magic, not the band, but obviously summer, early autumn. Mm. But certainly, I'm a supporter of the charity, and I certainly learnt from the children, certainly more than they probably learnt from me. I learnt from the children and learn from myself what would be the best manner to deal with a situation. How would I like to be treated? How would I sort of manage a situation? How would I like to be talked to? What would get the best out of me? And I learned from them. But like you say about Black Lives Matter, and obviously Kamala Harris, the vice president, I in Britain we had two female prime ministers, but right. <laughs> can't say I was a fan of either of them. They weren't exactly of my political persuasion, but uh, <laughs> but uh, the thing, but yes, I always have a bit of a bit of a well. It's, it's different culture, it's different, different. Obviously, it's complete to racism, and I think with racism now, they haven't been overt, and even outside of the pandemic, people chanting it in, in the stands. It goes onto social media, like in Britain, we've seen quite a few very recent examples of racism on social media with high-profile footballers, mm. and it's it's just unacceptable anyway, shape or form. And I still think, I personally think, the government of the United Kingdom, well, Westminster, is very very racist. Mm. It's very racist and it's very prejudiced mm. to anyone who, who isn't who isn't their background, rich, eaten, educated, tops. 
And being somebody who's off a council estate, working class, even though I own my own home now after my mother's sad passing, it's very much, I don't relate to people like that. They, they don't relate to me and they're very much, like, there's racism in every nation, especially. Right. And I personally think, to me, and I think Britain has got worse with racism since 2016 and the Brexit and the European Union referendum. Right. I've noticed a shift since then with racism that it's got worse since the European Union referendum when Britain, I obviously voted to remain, but I just find since then it's got a lot worse racism in the United Kingdom. And mm-hmm. I do think the good thing about the situation with what happened over the summer is it created more honest discussions and, and some people don't want to hear them. But they're sorts of issues that I've been cognizant of for a long time. And I always think that the abuse that people who are black, Asian, minority, ethnic receive, be they Muslim, be they black British or whatever, black Caribbean British or whatever, right. I don't know how people have put up with that for so many years, whether it's racial unconscious bias mm. or a disproportionate not, not being employed in that in that line of work, it happens in some sports and happens in society generally. I could really, I could comprehend someone doing that to me. And there's certainly, I can imagine one, and it's a very small minority, but I have a lot of power in the United Kingdom, where they have all the money. But statistically, there are more people who are British Islamic or British Muslim in the United Kingdom than a Welsh like me. Right. Or just as many. And you think, well... I get a bugbear about this because I think I've had one person be racist to me throughout my life, one person, and that was the incident with the with the member of staff at the school. They were racist to me. Wow. About my Welsh nationality, I was 11 at the time. But you think of how much racism as somebody who's a black Caribbean, black right. African, right. a British Muslim has to put it with on a daily basis, never mind once in 36 and a quarter years. So I don't think I could necessarily... I'd have been arrested by now because I'd have probably turned on him. So I th- I th- it's a bugbear for my, me. And I just, and in other words, I'd much rather be autistic. God's better. I, I, I can't, <laughs> no, can't no, on. but really, yeah. Because the, these lovely, right. wonderful people receive. Right. Because I don't tend to receive, these people will receive terrible abuse. Right. And it's unacceptable and it's wrong. Where I, being autistic nowadays, in Britain, the services are dreadful, and right. then all the support goes to the third sector. Comes from the th- third sector, which is much better than the natural services, the public services. But the actual racism—you'll just see the casual racism, the unconscious bias. Right. People want to employ right. someone just because of the colour of their skin or their faith. Oof. I'm personally an atheist, but it does upset me that people who are British, mostly British Indian, British Afro-Caribbean, right. and Really well, me. and I think the uh, discrimination that you've seen uh, also ranges, right? Here, and I'm sure everywhere, people with disabilities are seen as um, having weaknesses. You know, some people have the mentality of we have to take care of them. Some of them, you know, want to discard them. And I think you picked up on something really real in terms of the correlation between race and disability and ability. And I actually had had a question about your latest book, A Vision of Exercise, Tales of Inspiring People and Organizations, if you are able to kind of talk to that, because was the inspiration behind that just really kind of seeing how society was changing, especially in Britain with like Brexit, or what was the inspiration behind that book? Sorry, my experiences of training, 
okay. exercise. Mm. Sorry, my experiences of exercise and just finding out. Do, do any other people find out about find get the same buzz from exercise? Now, during mm. the writing of the book, which was published exactly three years ago in April, mm. I went on a bit of a well, to use a very cliched term, a journey myself with my training, yeah. where I changed coach, well, what from a trainer to a coach. After one was not very nice to me and my family, we mm. thought they were a family friend, mm. to a much better gym. I was about to pack in training during the course of that book. But then I found a lovely gym called Number One HSP, a non-profit gym on the English Welsh border, because I do live very close to the to England. It's a ten-minute drive away, and when you live in Wales, about two thirds of Wales is no more than an hour's drive from England at most. So, and the thing is, it's very much it was a journey for myself, and I found other people interesting stories. Like, I was a family friend who was the first Welsh footballer to win the European Cup in the 1970s, and there was other people, there was also the Paralympic medalist who trained at my gym and was part of it. It was an interesting book, but it was quite niche, to be honest, compared to the memoirs. It sold about one-eighth of what the memoirs has. <laughs> so, I actually wrote a book, a local history book on football and cricket after that, and it was not before that, and that sold more than the vision of exercise, strangely enough. <laughs> that was I, the steel bat and ball? Yes, I was about the history of football and cricket in a, in a village in Wrexham. And that actually sold more copies than what the Mission of Exercise did. Really? So, <laughs> because the thing was with that, people related to it because it was a picture book as well as writing with all the statistics and the facts and history of it. Because people bought it, oh, my granddad's in that. My tight well, tight is granddad in, in Wales. My uncle's in that, my oh, brother's wow. in that. My dad's in that yeah. picture of like team pictures and stuff with all action shots of the of them playing cricket or playing football. So that's what it was. And the village related to it. I actually played cricket myself in an English league actually in Shropshire for a club called Chirk. But actually I played for the second team and I really thought he joined the and the club, Chirk Cricket Club have been immensely wonderful to me. Since it's the sudden passing of my beloved man, they've been, they're going to have a permanent memorial at the ground for her. Wow. And they're going to both wear black, both teams are going to wear black armbands when the 2021 season begins. Aww. So I volunteer uh, to Country Park on the English Welsh border called Wepper Park, and they've agreed to have a plaque on a bench on my mum's favourite bench there. She Aww. always went there when I was volunteering, so yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah. As we're wrapping up, what is one thing that you want people to know about either, you know, just communicating with a person, you know, to a person like yourself with autism? Is there one kind of thing that you, you know, say to the kids that you sometimes mentor? What's one thing that you want to kind of leave our listeners with as food for thought? Just speak very nice and calmly to someone, treat, treat someone like as you would be treated. Right. Treat someone as you would be treated and just very much speak to them with the respect that you would like to be shown, but the respect that you would like to be reciprocated to you. Because if you're hyper, if you're angry with someone, then that's not going to get you get you anywhere. Right. And like during the pandemic, I found, found out that all the term that I've coined from my strength and conditioning coach, Chris Hibbert, a number one HSP, control the controllables. And then the day just what can we control in life apart from our own behaviour and showing respect to others? Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you speak to people the way you would like to be speak, spoken to and treated yourself, and just that's all I can say, really. 
I love that's that. wonderful advice. It's, you know, I think it can be good advice for everyone, you know, just interacting with others, being treating others the way that you'd want to be treated. I think we'd have a lot less problems in our world. Yes. I, I, like I've said before, I'm not a religious person. I'm a devout atheist. But the thing is, it's certainly treat others as you would be treated. It's very similar to a to something sort of a very well known uh, religious term. But certainly, I I <laughs> yeah. just think I just think just treat others as you would be treated because if you treat everyone else rubbish, someone's right. going to get you when you're on the way down. Right. No one's going to be uh-huh. there to help you and support you. So absolutely, you treat others like you like to be treated. You'll be fine. Absolutely. Andrew, we really appreciate you taking the time to come onto our podcast and to tell our listeners about your story and of sharing all the wonderful memories of your beloved mother. That really just makes my heart all warm. And, you know, I'm so sorry that she passed, but you hold her in such great regard. I'm sure she's just smiling down on you. Well, I don't necessarily believe in that being an atheist. Um, do any of you remember the TV show from the 90s, The Odyssey? Oh, the Odyssey, like a, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like a kid's show from the 90s. It used to be on Nickelodeon in this country. I think it was on Channel 4 as well. Mm-hmm. And the character was Jay, wasn't he? And he used to, and he was in a constant dreamlike sequence, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. In a coma. Well, but his dreamlike sequence was a dystopian world, wasn't it? Obviously different to what we're living now. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I was joking in all seriousness now. But I've read up and I think when we're no longer here, that probably we're just in a constant dreamlike sequence and so forth. And that's all I just think. It seems plausible to me. Plausible. That's all I could say. I think I certainly think like my mother's ashes are upstairs mm-hmm. at the moment in her bedroom. But then when the when the vaccines have done the magic, not the ban in this country, and we are vaccinating at alarming quick rates in the United Kingdom at the moment. Right. Because of our wonderful national health health service. Nothing to do with politics. Mm. Uh, and when the weather picks up in the IT Kingdom in Wales in the summer, as per her wishes in her will, my ma ha wanted to be buried next to a dog tree in the front garden. The dog tree is what we planted in memory of our dogs, and she wanted to be buried there. So, yes, so we're going to do that in the summer and have, a, have one of those big urns. But uh, yeah, she wanted to be cremated, so. Uh, uh, and I mean, that's why she left those instructions, right? So that you could follow through and just have her memory with you and you can well, carry it always. Well, people actually go to the, you know, with all the best intentions in the world, people who've lost loved ones, I don't know whether you have Vicky or Amanda in the past, we have. but the thing mm-hmm. is, uh, you're the best intentions in the world. People only tend to go to the cemetery when it's someone's, what would have been someone's birthday or, or when, an anniversary right. or Christmas time or a celebration, like all the celebrations in America, like Thanksgiving or, right. or Independence Day or right. whatever, President's Day, Memorial Day or something like that. Where, in this, where with my mother, if I'm, I can just go visit in the front garden next to the dog tree. Right. And sit in the garden. Right. And I think that's what she would have wanted. And she would have wanted it to be as convenient as possible for us. So... Absolutely. And summer, hopefully, I know winter is, there's a long couple months, but you'll get there and be able to do that and hold her. You guys, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. And we will talk to you guys next week. See you later. Bye. Bye.